This morning, as we think of Advent, I direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Follow with me in your copy of God's Word. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Would you please bow with me and let's pray. Father, we can have joy this morning because we know that Jesus Christ reigns. We have joy this morning because you are sovereign and your purpose will not be thwarted in any way. So Father, I pray that as we read this text and think about it, as we meditate upon it, Lord, and as we hear your word proclaimed, lift us to greater joy. Help us not to be bogged down by the things of this world, but Father, help us to live with a future expectation of what you're going to do. Lord, where encouragement is needed, grant it. Where conviction is needed, grant it, Father. And where hope is needed, please provide it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Many years ago, Jeff Foxworthy rose to national prominence with the catchphrase, his routine, you might be a redneck if... Well, I came across this in the past week, and it struck me, so I thought I would share the blessing this morning. You might be from the South if you consider the first day of deer season a holiday. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Revival broke out. You might be from the South if you don't call a carbonated soft drink a soda, cola or pop but a coke no matter what the brand or flavor is you might be from the south if you know fix is a verb as in I'm a fixin to go to the store you might be from the south if you know that y'all is singular and all y'all is plural and all y'alls is possessive plural you might be from the South if you know the power of Aquanet. You might be from the South if you believe last names are unnecessary when referencing Loretta, Dolly, Waylon and Willie, June and Johnny, Hank or Elvis. struck me as funny because it's, it's pointing out characteristics of folks that live in the South. You could apply that to anyone from any geographic location. There are certain traits 
that identify certain characteristics that model our lives. That, when we travel outside the South, make people say, you're not from around here, are you? The scripture teaches that as believers, our lives should be lived if the world looks at us and says, you're not from around here, are you? See, there are certain characteristics we are to have as believers that make us stand out. Certain traits that make us different from the world. That make us in some ways odd and peculiar. But characteristics that also shine like a, a light in the darkness. A candle that has been lit on a dark night that radiates that indeed there is something about us because of the one whom we serve. There's something different about us because the Holy Spirit fills us. And it is that issue that Peter picks upon in this passage. He starts dealing with the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, people have begun to doubt if Jesus was even going to return. Within 30 years of Jesus ascending up into heaven, there were teachers that had arrived upon the scene that started saying, where is he? If Jesus is coming back, why is he delaying? Even within 30 years, the church began to undergo certain aspects of persecution. And so the question arose, why would Jesus wait when his people are suffering? When will he show up to alleviate the pain and the hurts of this world? And those are questions that still resonate today. Where is Jesus? Why is he delaying? Have you ever thought to yourself, wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus came back now? <laughs> yes, it would be. You see, but these teachers had another element in what they were saying. They were saying, if Jesus hasn't come back by now, he probably isn't. And if you're living like Jesus is coming back and he's not, you are just deceiving yourselves. Because if he's not coming back, there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, why not live any way you want to in this world? After all, you only live once. And so these teachings were like a strong crosswind that were blowing believers off track. It was causing them to compromise their faith. It was causing them not to seek the things of God, not to grow in godliness. So Peter gives this corrective. He says, come back and remember that as people who believe in the coming of Jesus Christ, you are to live differently. We are to be characterized as a people who are waiting. See, that's where Christmas is a model for the believer's life. Just like we are anxiously awaiting next Tuesday to celebrate Christmas, just like there's a, a sense of anticipation rising like a volcano about to explode, that's the life of the believer. This is simply a model for how we are to live. Peter says you live with expectation. So what characterizes us as believers? Well, Peter says, first of all, we are to be characterized as a people marked with a future orientation. We are to be characterized as a people looking to a future. See, there are many ways that you can choose to live life. Some choose to let their past dictate everything about them. They always live looking in the rearview mirror. And rather than learning from the past, the past becomes an excuse for actions in the present. 
Problems of the past become magnified in life today so that we never get beyond past mistakes or things that were done. We never begin to look toward the future. And I can often pick those people out because their lives are marked by consistent grumbling and complaining that life has not been fair. That's not where the believer is meant to live. Nor are we to live only in the present. You see, you live in the present, you'll end up losing sight of the future. Living in the present is kind of like walking around just looking down. You'll walk and 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 boom, all of a sudden you'll hit something because you're not looking up. That's exactly what the believers who are so consumed with the present that they don't live according to the future. So Peter says, you live looking forward. Why? Because Jesus Christ is going to come back. Why hasn't he returned? Well, he says, first of all, in verse 8, it's because we reckon time wrongly. You see, we're getting anxious about his return because we forget that God lives in eternity and therefore he is over time. He doesn't mark time like we do. So he says in verse 8, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, this verse is not teaching some divine ratio that we can use to figure out all the mysteries of the Scripture. Notice the little word that is repeated two times in it. The word as. One day is as a thousand years. A thousand years as one day. That as signifies that he's not speaking in strict chronological measurements. He is speaking in in metaphor and imagery to say God measures time differently than we do. We measure time in years and months, in hours and minutes, and in seconds. God doesn't. God sees the past, the present, and the future all in one glance. So he is accounting time differently than we are, and that's what creates the stress for us. Because you and I live lives dictated by the clock. We are enslaved to it. I am. I've got 30 minutes for this message. Yes, I just said 30 minutes. Because you're thinking, I know he takes 45. It's hard for us to wait. We're used to getting things now and on a time schedule and getting it exactly when we want. Timex, the watch company, did they, they commissioned researchers to find out exactly how long people are willing to wait for certain things. One of the things they measured was this. How long on average do people wait before they honk at the person in front of them when the traffic light turns green? On average, they found people will wait 13 seconds. I think it's a lot less than that at Christmas time. Because we got to hurry to get gifts. Santa's on his way. They found out people will wait an average of 26 seconds before they will shush people who are talking in a movie theater. They'll also wait 26 seconds before they take the seat of someone who's walked away. 26 seconds before we say, that seat's mine now. They'll wait 45 seconds before asking someone who's talking too loud on a cell phone to keep it down. On average, people are willing to wait 13 minutes for a table at a restaurant. And around Thanksgiving, they found that most of the time, families will wait up to 20 minutes for the last person to show up before they start eating Thanksgiving dinner. My family, if you weren't there, that's too bad. So you see, God doesn't work on our time frame, so that's where the stress comes. Where are you, Jesus? 
It's time. Lord, why aren't you doing this now? And Peter reminds us that God is reckoning time differently than we are. So we have to trust Him. We have to, to be willing to say, Lord, you are God. You are sovereign over all things. Your time is not mine. But Lord, I trust you. But now notice what he says. Even though he is waiting, look at verse 9. He's not slow in fulfilling his promise. In other words, he has not forgotten his promise to return. So why is God waiting? He is waiting according to the scripture because he is patient. Why is he patient? He doesn't want anyone to perish. Now we know that. Not everyone's going to believe in the Lord Jesus. But this teaches us that God is delaying the return of Jesus to allow ample opportunity for people to repent. He's giving opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed. So he's saying, remember that's why he's waiting. There's a purpose in it. He's waiting to give an opportunity for people who have never heard the gospel to hear it. But then he reminds us, don't get lulled to sleep. Verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. His point is it will come by surprise. Unexpectedly. Many years ago when Jody and I lived in Texas, uh, the student minister had asked us to kind of keep an eye on his and his parents' house while they were out of town. So we would stop by the house, be sure everything was okay. Well, one Saturday night we arrived and found that the front door was open by this much. And it was clear that they had been broken into. And we did something quite foolishly. We decided to go in. It was like, you know, Andy, Barney, and Gomer walking into a house to investigate. We should have just went ahead and called the police, which we, we did eventually. But had we known that the thief was coming, we'd have been prepared. We'd have acted proactively. The police would have been there waiting. But since we didn't know when it was coming, there was that element of surprise. And when he says Jesus will come like a thief, he's saying he's coming when you don't expect it. So if you have to live with a sense you don't know when he return, you must be ready at all times. Because he says, guess what? There are three things that are going to happen when Jesus returns. One, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now at this point he's saying when Jesus comes back, he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophesied. He is quoting Isaiah 34.4 here. Look up on the screen and you'll see what Isaiah wrote. Because Isaiah spoke of this same thing. The host of heaven will rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine and leaves falling from the fig tree. He is saying that when Jesus returns, it will be universal in its ramifications and all will be changed. He continues this theme in verse 10 the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved the phrase heavenly bodies is the word in the Greek elements it's been very difficult to translate exactly what it means because it can refer to stars in the sky it can refer to the building blocks of life but the point becomes clear no matter how you interpret it the things that we look to in this world are not going to last that's why he says at the end of verse 10 the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed do you notice the track that Peter takes here Paul talks a lot about the individual changes that will occur when Jesus returns the new bodies, the resurrected bodies but Peter takes a step back and says think big picture creation was impacted by the fall 
And when Jesus returns, creation will be redeemed. It will be transformed. The injustices of this world will be set right. And that's what he is saying here. He is saying that this, this imagery of burning is not God's wrath out of control. This image of a roaring fire burning things is a controlled burn to set things new. And he says you live with that in your thinking. To be future oriented so you are prepared. Don't be caught by the fact that God's delaying. Be ready. One of the Christmas movies that a lot of families watch during this season is the film Home Alone. At the risk of giving a spoiler about Home Alone, it tells the story of the McAllister family. They're getting ready to take a trip to Europe. Their extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, so the house is full. But on the night before they leave, a storm occurs and it knocks the power out. So their clocks don't go off. And so whenever the shuttles from the airport arrive, guess what? No one's ready. Chaos ensues. And you can guess what happens. Kevin is left home alone. Peter is saying here, live forward looking so you'll be ready when that time comes. Well, what's it mean to be ready? Look down to verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We are to live lives characterized by holiness and godliness. Holiness means to be set apart, to be different. Holiness is a phrase that encompasses all the characteristics of God that are far beyond, far beyond us. We think of God's love. His love is higher than we could ever imagine. We think of God's grace. His grace reaches down deeper than we could ever fathom. His truth is eternal and changes. We may know a little of love, a little of grace, a little of truth, but not like God is. You see, when we hear the word holiness, we automatically shift gears to don't. We de develop our list of what you don't do. To be holy means you don't do this. To be holy means you don't, don't drink, smoke or, smoke, or chew, and you don't go out with girls that do. That's to be holy. I think we need to reorient our definition. Holiness is much more than what you don't do. Holiness is who you are. How you live. So if we look at God and we say one of God's primary characteristics is love, what that means is we should be marked as a people who love. That when the world chooses to put on hate, we choose to clothe ourselves in love. We should be people of grace and forgiveness. People of truth when the world around us says that truth doesn't exist. He's saying that we are to represent the character of God to the world around us. And not to fall into living according to the standards of the world, but living according to the standards of God. That's where godliness comes in. Holiness and godliness. Godliness describes the activities that lead into holiness. Now follow with me here. We can say that we have been made holy because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been set apart as His people. But we are also called to grow in holiness, to be sanctified. Because there are tendencies, ways of thinking, habits that are in our lives that fight against 
who God has made us to be. Godliness refers to the practices that we employ to become more like Jesus, to fight those tendencies that would lead us away. So it's that we look at our lives and we say, you know what, I struggle to maintain a pure thought life. So, Lord, what do I need to do to grow in my thought life to be more like Jesus? Do I need to be in the Scripture more? Do I need to listen to, to music that will, will focus my heart and mind on Christ? Do I need to look for conversations that are filled with the gospel? What do I need to do, Lord, in this area? That's part of what the equipped classes are about. They are tools to help you and I to grow in holiness by employing the disciplines that will help us to change. So he says you employ yourself. You work in those things. That means every now and then we need to stop and ask, how are we doing? If our lives were x-ray, do they show the practices of godliness? Prayer, fasting, worship. Do our lives reflect who God is? Now it's easy to write that off and to say, Pastor, no one can do that. Nobody's perfect. No. But we are called to strive for those things. Because that's where joy is found. So we are characterized by people of a future orientation. Characterized as a people who are seeking holiness and godliness. Final thing waiting and expecting waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God waiting now this is not passive waiting because notice the phrase hastening that goes along with it this waiting is not that soul draining mind numbing waiting that often occurs to us say when you're waiting at the doctor's office and reading a magazine that came out in June of 2012 this is waiting more like an expectant mother's waiting. The waiting that a mother does when she's with child and is saying, what do I need to do to ensure the health of this baby? What do I need to do to be ready? What do I need to do? What does the husband need to do to get things ready? It's an expectant waiting that says, because I'm waiting on Christ, I'm going to be involved. Now, what's the hastening? I think the hastening is being involved in bringing about the very thing God's waiting on. Remember, why is He delaying the second coming? So people can hear it. So Peter's telling us if we want to hasten it, be about evangelizing. Be about missions. One of the reasons we showed the clip this morning is because it struck me as amazing that a Spanish-speaking church in Jackson, Tennessee is sponsoring churches in Southeast Asia. Now think about that. Only God could bring that about. And it's that reminder that this task of world evangelism is for all of us. He says that's part of being ready. So we are to be a people, the people of Advent, forward-looking, living in holiness and godliness, and waiting expectantly, hastening. I was struck by the story of Robbie Robbins. He was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraqi war. As the war was coming to a conclusion, 
Captain Robbins flew his 300th mission and he was surprised that after that his commanding officer met him, told him and his crew to gather their belongings while the plane was refueled and to fly home. They flew across the ocean, arrived in Massachusetts, and his buddies gave him a ride to his home in western Pennsylvania. They drove all night. And as the sun was coming up, he was pulling in his driveway. He was surprised to see a big sign above the door that said, Welcome home, Dad. He was puzzled. How did they know? He didn't know till he finished his 300th flight. He knocked on the door and his wife threw the door open when she saw it was him and she was dressed immaculately. Yellow dress, hair on, yellow dress on, hair made up, makeup. The kids were still getting ready to school for school, but they were nonetheless excited to see Dad. After the hugs and the tears, he asked them, how did you know? His wife answered, I didn't know. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. So we got ready every day. Christian, be ready every day. Every day. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.